You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on Old Testament characters, now diving into the story of Noah. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Old Testament Premium Podcast 3, Noah. In the first two lessons, we saw that things were rapidly going downhill in the first family. That is, after the expulsion from Eden involving Adam and Eve, we have murder outside the garden as Cain kills his brother Abel. We continue to read the genealogy of Cain, the woeful story of his descendants in Genesis chapter 4. I'd like to read something from chapter 17 of my book, Genesis, Science, and History, which uh, describes what's going on at this time in the line of Cain. The lack of spirituality in the line of Cain was rampant. Their accomplishments were worldly. Construction, music, metalwork, and murder. Not that the first three are without value, but there was no emphasis on God. This is in contrast to the line of Seth, Genesis 5, 2 to 32. Seth's name is likely a play on the Hebrew word for granted. That is, he was granted in the place of Abel. At last, Adam and Eve have a son again who makes spiritual sacrifices. It's only with the beginning of the godly line of Seth that mankind began to call on the name of the Lord. Throughout the generations of Cain, men and women had, quote, missed their devotional times with God. They had, quote, stopped going to church altogether. Their minds were on earthly things, Colossians 3.2. With Seth, there was hope again. And so we have two lines, two lineages. The righteous line of Seth, which is now rising up in the presence of the unrighteous line of Cain. There are some important lessons, several important lessons about sin and the dysfunction it always brings that emerge from these chapters. One, sin always drags us down. It doesn't lift us up. It creates a mindset of darkness and despair. There's no hope except false hope. Where sin drags us down, faith and a relationship with God do lift us up. Secondly, sin is perpetuated and propagated generation to generation. Like father, like son. This is not to deny the existence of free will. But there are very clear patterns we can see moving from generation to generation. And it takes a lot of energy and determination to break the cycle. We also see that there are two family lines. The line of Seth, which begins in 425 and uh, and is recounted in chapter 5. And the, the line of Cain. Families are different. There is such thing as a good family. There are solid families and there are unstable, shaky families. And it has everything to do with the attitude towards truth, from morality, towards God, towards faith. Well, let's get into our present study by reading a bit about Seth. Then we'll proceed to one of his descendants, Enoch. And we'll culminate looking at the man on whom we'll focus in this lesson, Noah. Genesis 4.25 Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another child instead of Abel because Cain killed him. 
To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. Just an aside here, it's clear that in chapter 4, until this time, mankind had lost its faith. It doesn't say that Cain and his descendants never talked about God or never attended organized religious meetings, but they were not truly in connection, communication, and fellowship with their Lord. This changes, fortunately, with Seth. One person can make a difference. Genesis 5.1 This is the list of the descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them humankind when they were created. I will continue to read. This is, by the way, the New Revised Standard Version. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. We see here that Seth is in the image of Adam. Adam, unlike his son Cain, seems to have had the ability to repent. Oh, yes, there was a shifty side to him, he and his wife alike. Uh, tried to evade responsibility and not take guilt. But Adam and Eve have more of a spiritual perspective. In that sense, Seth is in their image. Not that this is not a passage about genetic resemblance. It's a passage about spiritual resemblance. In the same way, we're God's children in the image of God. That doesn't mean we look like God or that, worse, God looks like us because God's not a man, as the scriptures affirm. No, it's the spiritual nature. And Seth is like Adam. In other words, there's hope now. Things were looking bleak during the generations of Cain. With with Seth, things are looking up. Things are looking hopeful. You'll also notice that Adam and Eve have many children, many sons and daughters. Every generation in this chapter, it's the male, it's the oldest son who's mentioned first. This is clearly highly stylized. The chances that the firstborn would be a male ten generations in a row um, is is a simple probability. It's more than a thousand to one against that. Twenty in a row, more than a million to one. But this is normal. The impression given is that it's always a, a boy born first and the girls come later. But in fact, it's not about chronology. It's about theology. They only come later because they're mentioned later. The truth is we don't know how often uh, the daughters were born first before the sons. Let's uh, go down to verse 21. Enoch has been born um, uh, just a little bit earlier. And, and I'm going to read just a few verses on this uh, interesting, mysterious, shadowy character in the Old Testament. When Enoch could live 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. As we know, Methuselah has the greatest age. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him. I'm realizing that some of us may be mildly distracted by the enormity of these lifespans. Why such longevity? I believe the key to understanding this is the contrast between these two lineages. When we read about Cain and his descendants, we don't read about these terrifically long lifespans. In the Old Testament, long life is considered a direct blessing 
from God. In fact, an indicator, a mark of righteousness. So we see this in the line of Seth, but not in the line of Cain. In other words, there's a theological point being made here. These are good guys. They're not bad guys like Cain's descendants. These are good guys. Now, if you want to ask about the scientific side, the biological side, how is this possible? What does this mean? I'll give you a link in the notes attached to this lesson so that you can do some further study. And I think you'll find a satisfactory explanation. But back to our character, Enoch. It says that Enoch was no more because God took him. He was one of just a few in the Old Testament who left this world in a very mysterious way. Of course, another was Melchizedek. In fact, neither his birth nor his death are recorded. Then we have um, Elijah, the prophet. And in the beginning of 2 Kings, Elijah is taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. Even Moses is something like this because he climbs Mount Nebo as he looks into the promised land and he dies. It says that God buried him and no one knows where that tomb is. I was in Mount Nebo a few weeks ago. Now, I don't think I discovered it, but for all I know, I might have been standing on top of it. Nobody knows. Well, naturally, among the Jewish people before the time of Jesus and in the time of Jesus, there was great speculation about the return of Elijah, about uh, characters like Enoch and Melchizedek. I think it's also interesting that in the transfiguration scenes of the New Testament, we find Moses and Elijah, again, on top of a mountain. So these men who go up, who leave this world uh, on some exalted plane at some high altitude, they mean something. They call us upward. They cause us to look upward. They cause us to look towards God. Enoch is also mentioned in Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 14. Of course, Jude only has one chapter. And there, his prophecies are quoted. And you may wonder, where is that? That's not in my Old Testament. Well, you're right. It's not in anybody's Old Testament. It's in a book called First Enoch, which is honored by the Ethiopians. But for most of us, we don't consider it to be scripture. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter. Jude quoted from it because Jude apparently thought these lines were valuable. But Enoch himself prophesied about uh, God's return and judgment and on the unrighteous. And that fits in very well with the little letter of Jude, but also ties in really well to Genesis 4, 5, and 6, which are moving on towards the flood. Enoch is also mentioned in Hebrews 11. And uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews contains, I think, almost all the characters, not all, but most, most of the characters we're going to study during this series on Old Testament figures. So let me back up to verse 1. Let me read right through the section about Enoch and end at Noah, because this ties in with everything we're studying in this lesson. Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this, he received approval as righteous. God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken, so that he did not experience death. 
And he was not found because God had taken him. For it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. What we're looking at here is the lineage of Seth. Now, of course, not Abel, but in an honorary way, since Seth was a kind of replacement for Abel, these figures are all in one line. We see that Enoch did not experience death because he had pleased God. The well-known verse 6, then, has a context. It's directly tied into a comment about Enoch himself. How important it is to please God by faith. Without faith, we cannot please God. There are two things that are required if we are going to please God. And one is that we believe in him, and the other is that we search for him. Neither mental assent is sufficient, nor a lifelong, quote, journey or search that leads nowhere. An honest search, a true faith, this is how we please God. Interestingly, in the book of Hebrews... It is said that there are four things that are impossible. Can you find the other three? If you need help, check out the New Testament studies at this premium website um, in the commentary under Hebrews. But this is one of those impossible things, impossible to please God without faith. That's just fundamental. Well, let's go back to Genesis 5. As we move through this genealogy, We encounter a number of characters who please God. People like Methuselah, even people like Lamech. Now, this is not the Lamech of chapter 4, the bloodthirsty man who, who, who is responsible for what is called the Song of the Sword, where he threatens vengeance totally out of proportion with the wrong that he was afflicted with. This Lamech is a good guy, and he has a son named Noah. And so let me read... Genesis 5.28 When Lamech had lived 182 years, he became the father of a son. He named him Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work. By the way, relief is what Noah means. Relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Lamech lived after the birth of Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so now we meet Noah. Well, like most of the characters up to Abraham, we don't see a lot of depth. We don't see much in the area of character development. This will change, though, uh, as Abraham comes on the scene. Still, we know more about Noah than most of these guys. One thing we know we look in verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. That's Genesis 6-8. And this is in contrast to what's going on on the planet, which is escalating violence. Genesis 6-5, to give the appropriate backdrop, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. This is not a positive 
social commentary, things are getting worse and worse. Noah finds favor. In fact, he's described as blameless in his generation. He's described as righteous. Have you noticed, though, that he was not perfect? After the flood is over in chapter 9, this man gets drunk. We'll comment on this in a few moments. But what's the thing to notice? Blameless doesn't mean perfect. If we define blameless as without any weakness or negative tendency or moral fault, well then, of course, no one is blameless. Well, but we're not talking about an absolute scale of perfection here. As the passage says, Noah was blameless in his generation. It's relative. Now, we're familiar with this term because we read about the New Testament qualities required in an elder. And we see this in Titus and also in 1 Timothy. The elder must be blameless. Well, blameless doesn't mean sinless. If if one fall, if one incident of sin means you're not blameless, well, then no one's blameless and there can be no elders. So I think we have to make sure we're defining biblical terms correctly. Noah was a righteous man, but even the most righteous man on earth will fall from time to time. What about Jesus Christ? Well, he was a man, but he wasn't a man. He was a God-man. Jesus was God in the flesh. And so with the incarnation, we have a clear exception. Well, I think we all know the story of Noah and the ark. Many of us, even from childhood. And he's given specific instructions. We read in the last verse of chapter 6, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So he builds an ark. We know the story here. He builds it in holy fear, as Hebrews says. And what was he doing during the time that the ark was being built? I don't know. Yes, Second Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. But what does that mean? I can think of several possible interpretations here. Well, one is that he was a preacher in the sense that church preachers are preachers. I mean, he got up on a somewhat regular basis and he delivered a lesson and people responded or failed to respond. And that's certainly possible. In fact, that may be implied. You don't see it in most English translations. But in 1 Peter 4.4, 4, actually the NIV captures it very well, when it mentions a flood of dissipation. There's a contrast here, I believe, between the flood of water and the flood of evil thoughts and evil deeds in the world. And so there... Ultimately, the lesson is if, if we don't separate ourselves from the world in the way that God separated Noah and his family from the world by the ark, by the water, then we'll be destroyed by the flood. But the real flood is not the flood of water. It's a flood of sin. We imagine that Noah was mocked. And often we get mileage out of this. Imagine people laughing at him day after day, saying it's never rained and so forth. Well, we simply don't know. If Noah was mocked or not, maybe in their society, they thought this was a good thing. Yes, diversity is good. Just don't take it too seriously. 
We don't know if he was mocked or not. We just have no idea. So perhaps he was a preacher with words. But there's another way he could be a preacher, and that's through his example. Remember, where we recently read about Abel, it said through his faith he still speaks. That was in Hebrews 11.4. As God had said to Cain in Genesis 4, your, uh, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The words could be metaphorical. That is, Noah might be preaching to us through his example. Just the fact that we have the story of Noah and the ark, Genesis 6 to 9, is a form of preaching. And then there's a third possibility, which is a variation on the second possibility, which was that Noah, whether he said anything or not is relevant, was an example to his own generation. The very act of building this ark was an object lesson, whether he said a word or not. So you can speculate and have your own opinion about this, but the truth is we don't know. We do know that he obeyed God. After the flood is over, Noah offers a sacrifice. He exits from the ark, and we read in verse 20 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. You may recall that in the ark, there were many animals. Uh, There were two pairs of the unclean animals, that is, those that could not be offered for sacrifice. And then there were seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. So much for the typical Sunday school scenario, which really has little to do with the text. So Noah offers a sacrifice to the God who has rescued him. In the same way, we offer spiritual sacrifices to the God who has rescued us. We see that in Romans 12, 1 to 2. We see that in 1 Peter 2, I believe verse 4 following. And also in Hebrews 13, where we offer the sacrifice of lips that praise his name, the fruit of lips that praise his name. We praise his name because he has rescued us. Well, for all of his righteousness, there is a dark moment. As we move into chapter 9, we read this, verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. Well, he has lost consciousness of what he was doing, even what he looked like. Noah, a blameless man, got drunk. Was he responsible for this sin? I believe so. The passage doesn't suggest to me that he was, that he was not responsible. But that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is actually about Canaan. And we'll come to that in a moment. I'll explain what I mean by that. But as I said, even a righteous man will slip, will fall from time to time. And Noah becomes drunk. He becomes drunk. But what happens is worse than just that. In verse 22, it says that Ham, or Ham in Hebrew, Ham, the father of Hanaan, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. Now we wonder, as the readers, what did he tell them? Even why did he tell them? Why did he have to do that? Why couldn't he just cover his father up as his brothers did? Because in verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards. 
and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, obviously he was told, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord, may my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth and make him let him live in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his slave. So what's going on here? Well, there's an important theological point, but there's also an important family or parenting point. And I don't know which one to make first. Well, let's begin with the parenting point, because I'm reading from my own written notes, and I'm less likely to forget the other part. See, in the story, Noah has three sons. Uh, Shem, first son, Ham would be mentioned in the middle, he'd be the middle child, and we have Japheth. Two of them are respectful, and certainly in comparison to Ham, they are modest. Ham has some kind of sexual dysfunction, some kind of perversion here. What he does, does he enjoy seeing his father unclothed? Does he take some kind of pleasure from it? Does he dwell on it? And is it the way he told his brothers about it? We don't really know. But we do know that uh, he was hit very hard as his offspring were cursed. See, if Noah had uttered a, a curse about Ham, that would be one thing. But the way someone perpetuates himself is through descendants. And so the curse lands on Ham's son, whose name is Canaan, or Canaan. Well, there are three sons. Two, two seem to have turned out well. I mentioned respect and modesty as two of their qualities. Obviously, there were more because they accompanied their father in the whole enterprise of the ark. But one son, it's sad, gives into perversion. This is not something, uh, you know, this is not a, a passage we would speak upon lightly to inspire people. But the truth is, all of our families have some dysfunction. There is a mechanical view of parenting. It's a view that my wife and I have challenged in our teaching and in our book on parenting called The Quiver. The view that says, if you're a good parent, your children turn out well. Well, you know, we believe that is true as a generality. Proverbs 22, verse 6, generally speaking, yes, if we train a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he won't turn away from it. And that's good news. But Proverbs tend to be generalizations. It's not a guarantee. The kids still have free will. There's no determinism here. Noah seems to have been a good parent. Some of you listening to this, you're good parents. And maybe you have a lot of children. Maybe one of them is going through a rebellious phase or has not turned out well. That doesn't necessarily mean you're not a good parent any more than the fact that Adam and Eve rebelled means that God wasn't a good parent. Now, this is not to uh, empower us or give us excuses, but we need to respect this delicate balance between our parenting and the element of control in it and the free will, the volition of our children. Good ancestry, good genes is no guarantee that the kids will turn out well. It doesn't work that way. Again, there's no determinism. Well, as I said, the major point here, though, it's not about parenting. It's a theological point. 
You see, the book of Genesis is written for the Jews. And it's full of hints all over that it's written for the Jews. For example, we have the seven days of the creation week. Well, that clearly ties into the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, we've got the, the, the way the sun and the moon are described as the great light and the lesser light, the bigger light, the smaller light. You know, in the ancient world, the sun and the moon were worshipped as gods. They were worshipped as gods. And here, they're presented as they are, part of the created order. Oh, this would have made the monotheistic Jews feel proud, and it was a slap in the face to polytheism. Where is the Garden of Eden? The garden, it says, is planted in the east. Well, of course, that's a relative, uh, that's a relative measure. East of what? East of what? Well, apparently, east of Israel. It was east of Israel. So, what does that mean? It means that Genesis is written in a time where there's an Israel. Genesis wasn't written uh, any earlier than that. We have another comment early, uh, later on in Genesis about this being before the time that any kings reigned in Israel. Well, the first king is Saul, and that's 11th century B.C., so Genesis couldn't have been written much before 1000 B.C., and more likely it was written 100, 200, maybe several hundred years later. And there's so much in Genesis that refers to the Israelites. Well, what about Canaan? It's no coincidence that Ham's son is Canaan. Canaan is the father of the Canaanites, the very people Israel is called to overcome, not to emulate, but to fight against. Well, I think it's time to summarize the lessons we have learned by looking at Noah. Firstly, blameless does not mean perfect. That's good news for you and me. We may be perfect in Christ, but blameless in the Bible does not mean that we never do wrong. Now, let's be determined not to do wrong, but we do have one who speaks to the Father and our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But blameless does not mean perfect. Second, you may be a righteous man, you may be a righteous woman, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got a perfect family any more than it means that you're the product of perfect parenting. And even a good parent may have a troubled child. Thirdly, we see about Noah that he was obedient. He followed instructions, and this saved his life. And as with him, so with us. When we're obedient and follow God's instructions, we'll save ourselves and many others. And fourth, we see that he honored the God who rescued him. As he was rescued from this cataclysm, he gave a sacrifice, and sacrifice, and he honored God. Well, for further study, of course, uh, Noah's mentioned uh, in other chapters of Genesis. He's mentioned in First Chronicles, in Luke, Isaiah. Ezekiel 14, 14, and 20 are very interesting passages. I would encourage you to look at those. Again, all these will be in your notes. Uh, Noah is mentioned in Matthew 24, Luke 17. We've already read Hebrews 11, 7. I referred to 2 Peter 2, 5. And there's also 1 Peter 3, 19. Well, I, um, if I were going to pick two verses to learn, and when I say learn, I don't mean memorize the verse, but memorize the location, know where it is. It's that curious combination, juxtaposition of verses that we've already noted. 6.9 and 9.21. where we read that Noah was blameless. 9.21, where this blameless man behaves in a way that's not exactly blameless. So 6.9 and 9.21. For kids, there's so many lessons that we could do uh, in a devotional setting about Noah. Uh, 
God is serious about sin. God keeps his promises. God rewards those who obey him. You can easily find these lessons. They're just lying on the surface. What does a passage show us about God? Well, it shows that God takes sin seriously. In fact, so seriously that he was willing to destroy the earth in order to preserve mankind. People are often troubled by how a loving God could do such a thing. I think uh, an analogy I've heard, you might say, well, how could a loving doctor uh, subject a cancer patient to chemotherapy or radiotherapy? Won't that cause damage? Won't it cause um, even more evil? Won't that cause innocent cells to die? Yes, indeed. But in the long run, that is the best way, in fact, the only way. The only way mankind, you and I, would have been preserved is through the grace of God. So even in judgment, we see grace. God bless you, and I hope you're looking forward to lesson number four, which will be on Abraham. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on Noah. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.